In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. We continue in the season of Epiphany where we discuss and reflect upon God revealing himself, manifesting himself to the world. And the presentation of the Lord is a feast within Epiphany uh, that's a further example of how it is that God has manifested himself, revealed himself. And again, as we think more about how God reveals himself to the world, we learn more about how we're called to participate with him in that revelation, how we too are called to give testimony by the living of our lives uh, to the truth of our Lord and Savior. The presentation is a feast that we don't often see on a Sunday because it's a fixed feast. It's 40 days after Christmas. So as you know, Christmas can be on any day of the week. The presentation is the same way. And so maybe only every six or seven years do we see the presentation fall on a Sunday. Uh, We've done it this year, and so it gives us an opportunity to think about this very important feast. So the first thing to reflect upon is just that 40 days, right? 40 days is very important in the scriptures. We see that number 40 over and over again, don't we? We see the the 40 days of the flood of Noah, and we see the 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness, the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness as well. These are times of purification, times when the people of God are set aside and purified, made ready for their service to God. And the purification that the law of Moses calls for the firstborn uh, is no different. It's a time when uh, they're supposed to recognize those 40 days and to give thanks to God to purify that newborn child. We read about it uh, in the preparation in the law of Moses in Exodus as they're uh, coming out of Egypt and as they're called to remember the Passover. And they're called to remember the Passover yearly, but they're also called to remember the Passover every time they have a newborn child, that this is a a new time when they're supposed to remember uh, that the angel of death passes over and that the Lord would preserve their children uh, if they set their children aside for the Lord, if they dedicate uh, their children to the Lord and participate in his redemption of Israel. And so that's what Mary and Joseph are doing. They're participating in this ancient ritual and they're fulfilling uh, exactly the law as it was given to Moses. As we saw them do with the circumcision, as we saw them do with the naming of Christ, they're participating in those rituals. You remember that uh, all of these are given to Moses as uh, reflections of what happens in heaven. That the Lord takes Moses aside and he says, uh, look into heaven. He gives him a vision of what goes on in heaven. And he says, build a tabernacle, construct the worship of the people as you see it in heaven. And so what Moses does with the people is he makes a working model, if you will, of what's going on in heaven. So the tabernacle worship is, is a working model. And if you think about models and the way that we give them to our children to, to play with, this is exactly what the nation of Israel is doing. They're children who are being taught how to participate with God in heaven. Uh, this is a playroom that they're given. A playroom in which it's uh, filled with uh, toy houses and toy kitchens and, and dolls and cradles and all these kinds of things. This is what we put into children's playrooms, right? Because we want them to learn through play how they're supposed to keep house, right? We're supposed to be giving them this affinity for caring for children, for feeding and caring for families, for constructing their lives around uh, that service to others. And so uh, the playroom of a child uh, prepares them for a greater responsibility. 
In the same way, the tabernacle in the wilderness is preparing the people for the fulfillment, which is the coming of Christ as the final lamb, the final sacrifice for our participation in that sacrifice of Christ. And finally, for us to join with God in that true worship in heaven that Moses saw. And so the tabernacle is established in the wilderness, and you remember that they move it along with the people, and then finally it gets uh, set in place in Jerusalem, and the tabernacle becomes a temple under Solomon, and that temple remains on the Temple Mount as this permanent place of worship, but again a kind of a, a plaything, a model for the working of the whole world and creation and its worship of God. The Babylonians come in, you'll remember, and they desecrate the temple, and the people of God are taken away into captivity. They're brought back uh, around uh, the uh, 500, 520 or so, and then there's a new group that, that are given to restore the temple and restore temple worship, and that's where we find Malachi. He's in this first generation of people that are uh, participating in a restored worship in the temple of God, and he's saying to them, you're not getting this worship right you're forgetting what it is that you're supposed to be doing with this worship it's kind of like going into a children's playroom and seeing they're using the cups as frisbees they're just not uh, working with that model the way that they're supposed to and malachi saying this is not how the worship of god is supposed to be right it's not uh, a way for you to excuse yourselves and this is how um, people of faith have continued to to become superstitious and to forget about what it is that we're supposed to be doing in our worship of god we become superstitious about holy communion about circumcision about baptism about offerings and sacrifices to god and we start to think that we can do those things and we don't have to participate in the righteousness of god as somehow because we give our money or our time or we take holy communion now everything is good and the lord is saying i want your hearts to be remade in righteousness and this is what malachi is reminding them of right he's saying that the worship in the temple is supposed to affect a change of righteousness in God's people. And so he foretells, he foreshadows, he prepares the people for the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus, right? Who are supposed to reestablish and reassert that importance of repentance and righteousness in the kingdom of God. Here in Malachi chapter 3, uh, verse 1, he, he prophecies. He says, I will send a messenger, right? That's John the Baptist. I will send a messenger and he will prepare the way before me, right? So God is talking about himself, right? The second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus. So John the Baptist comes and he prepares the way for Jesus. This is foretold in Malachi, right? And then it says, and then he will prepare the way for whom you seek, Right? And whom you seek, he's speaking to the righteous, right? Those few select few, like Elizabeth and Zechariah and John the Baptist. And here, of course, we read about Simeon and Anna as they are ones who are waiting for, who are seeking the Messiah to come, right? So they have been waiting for that promised Messiah. Though it's been 500 some years since the time of Malachi, they are preparing and they're waiting. So they're seeking him. And they. The Malachi says he will come suddenly to his temple. And that must have been how it would have seemed to Anna, right? Who had been waiting all this time. And Simeon, who had been waiting into old age. And then suddenly, here comes Mary and Joseph. And uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they recognize that God has finally fulfilled his promise. He comes suddenly into his temple, right? And then what we have is we have this understanding of what it is that God is doing, uh, how it is that God is preparing them, uh, right? And how he's preparing us uh, in this refiner's fire. 
So Jesus comes to refine us. He brings the Holy Spirit to refine us. And we read about this fire and we read about this this soap. And these are still the practices that we see in refining gold and silver today, right? We use a chemical bath, a wash to take away all of the dirt uh, that's in gold or silver. If you've ever seen gold or silver, especially in mines in Nevada, because in the mines in Nevada, if you were to look at a, at a silver trailing or a gold trailing, you, all you would see is a pile of dirt, right? If you go to Round Mountain and you look at these big heaps of dirt where they dig out the gold and you look at it, all you see is dirt. And it takes the chemicals and it takes the heat of the fire to break away that dirt and to leave that gold or silver, right? We're dirt, right? And we're about as useful and common as dirt until the Holy Spirit washes from us, breaks from us through fire all that's not of God so that what's left is useful. Gold and silver are very useful, right? They have many, many applications in in every aspect of our lives. But it's only when they've been refined, when they've been purified, when all of that dirt's been washed away, that they're able to be useful. And this is what the Lord would do for us. And this is how so many of us say, oh no, the fire of of hell, right? The the terror of of the fire of, of the judgment of God. Well, it's only appears to us that way if we're trying to hold on to that dirt. If we're saying, let me keep my life the way it is. Let me keep the things that I'm familiar to. Let me keep what it is that I want to keep about myself. But if we allow the Lord to purify us, to wash us, and to get rid of all that extra stuff, then we become useful for Him. Then that fire, then that washing of baptism is a good thing because we're able to be purified and ready for the Lord. And finally, so that we participate in salvation. And he says, they will bring offerings and righteousness to God. See, this is what we're being purified for, is to live lives of righteousness. And of course, Jesus doesn't need any of that. Just like his baptism, he doesn't need to be purified in the temple. See, what he's doing is he's fulfilling that purification in the temple. He's the last one that needs to be participating in that. We don't need temple worship anymore because we have the final sacrifice. Christ himself is the lamb that is slain. He is presented as the lamb in the temple. And he fulfills a thousand years of temple worship, 1,500 years of tabernacle worship. In this one moment, he comes in and he fulfills it all. You remember that Christian time is this spiral time, right? So we're repeating uh, all of these themes of salvation over and over again while we're moving forward in history. So we're not just talking about one event in human history. We're talking about a continual purification, a continual being made ready for the second coming of Christ. And that's what we have to be purified for, is for that second coming so that we're useful and the participation and the worship of the Lord. Simeon and Anna are incredible figures, right? And what is it that we see them doing? Just like we talked about uh, Cornelius and, uh, and St. Uh, Peter a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember how we talked about Cornelius and St. Peter and what they were doing when the Holy Spirit appeared to them? Do you remember that? Were they sitting around playing pinochle and eating chips? They were fasting and praying, right? They were focusing upon the worship of the Lord, right? And that is the place where they were in, where they uh, received the Holy Spirit. The same thing is true of Simeon and Anna. They are dedicating themselves to the life of God. They're dedicating themselves to preparation for Him. And so they're ready to see the Christ 
as the one who is promised. They're ready to see him as that sword uh, who is going to cleanse the world. We read about Anna. She did not depart from the temple. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And in that faithfulness, that's faithfulness, in that faithfulness, she receives that gift of seeing Christ in the flesh and knows that he has come to redeem Israel. This is what we're told in the letter to the Hebrews. The Christ is both the lamb that is slain and he's the priest who offers the sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer makes it clear to us, makes it very clear that Christ has to become man, that he has to take on flesh because it is our flesh, it is creation that he is going to restore. See, when he becomes a part of creation, he renews it. The salvation of creation is renewed when he takes on flesh, when he becomes one of us. That's part of the the plan and the purpose, the method of cleansing our creation is by him taking on flesh. And we read that he destroys when he does this and he teaches us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He stops sin, which leads to death. And when he defeats death, right, by dying the great paradox of the Christian faith, he destroys the fear of death. That's a big deal. Because the fear of death is what gets us into a lot of trouble. Have you noticed that? When people abort their babies, when they kill their children, they do it out of fear. Right? They're afraid of something. They're afraid of sickness. They're afraid of costs. They're afraid of caring for the children. They're afraid of losing their careers. They're afraid. It's fear that leads them to do that. When doctors and scientists get into into all kinds of trouble and and creating uh, methods of treatment that are unethical or they create uh, uh, scientific achievements that are unethical, right? It's because of fear, right? We create chemical weapons because we're afraid. Right? Or we create unethical medical treatments because we're afraid of getting sick and dying. We're not able to lay down our lives for others. We're not able to, to accept that we could be called to sacrifice ourselves. Right? What does Jesus say? Greater love hath no man than that he lay down his life for his friends. We don't embrace that because we're afraid of losing these bodies. Well, the truth of the matter is, we're losing these bodies one way or the other. And we're going to be given these new bodies in the resurrection. So Jesus comes not just to destroy sin, but to destroy death, and then to destroy in us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the fear of death. And when we're no longer afraid of dying and losing these bodies, the world opens. We have courage. We have strength. We have purpose. We're able to do extraordinary things that we never knew the Lord would prepare us to do when we're ready to be transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit. The tabernacle is a strange thing, isn't it? And and that it's it's been done away with. There's no more temple worship. 
So how is it that we can be purified? How is it that we can participate in that worship of God? The Holy Spirit, before Pentecost, was just given portions to the prophets. We read a portion of the Spirit is given to Moses, and then a portion is taken off of him and given to the other prophets. In baptism, we're given the entire Holy Spirit. All of the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us so that each believer becomes a temple of the Most High God. We are those temples. And when we come together in the name of Christ, when two or three are gathered together, we become living stones of that temple. See, we don't need a building. We don't need a steeple. We don't need any kind of of, of exterior things to become the church and to be the temple of God. All we need is to join together in His name through the power of the Holy Spirit and to be transformed in righteousness. And we can participate with Him like Simeon and Anna if we are faithful in our preparation. If we're faithful in prayer. If we're faithful in reading the Holy Scriptures. If we're faithful in doing the work that God has promised to do in us. And if we allow him to defeat our fear of death. We will do extraordinary things in his name. And we will raise up as temples of the Most High God. Amen.